welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, John, for being a guest on this podcast. Um, you're the husband of Helen and the father of three sons, two of which have been guests on my podcast before. And um, I think um, from what I've maybe recently read on on Facebook that you are um, getting into or you are a participant in the LibriVox um, recording of of uh, classic books and so forth. Is that correct? I have been very interested in that. Um, I fiddled around a little bit with trying to record, but uh, I guess it's a senior citizen problem. <laughs> not uh, not real good at um, getting the software to work for me. Okay. Without uh, putting a lot of extra effort into it. Um, I, I really appreciate the work that those who have recorded on it um, do. Uh, some are very professional, and it's all free. Yeah. Obviously, somebody underwrites it and, and manages it, but uh, from what I understand, it's mostly volunteer. So you listen to things on Liber LibriVox? I will listen occasionally to uh, recorded books. Okay. Well, as far as just an introduction, how would you describe just who you are as a person? Well, I'm a person with a very, uh, probably relatively unusual background. Uh, other than that, I would just say I'm a fairly normal, well, a fairly normal guy. I, you know, I work around the house. I, uh, I've got kids. I got grandkids. Mm -hmm. uh, don't travel much, uh, very little actually, uh, and have typical health health problems that senior citizens have. But uh, other than that, uh, just a family man. Okay, you know you mentioned an unusual background. Like, what are you referring to? Well, that's uh, it's a long story, and it it always. Uh, interests me to see what kind of person a person is and then match that uh, to their background to see what influences uh, made them the person they are. Um, and it, it's, it's always interested me that somebody, that two, di two different people with exactly the same type of background can turn out totally differently. Mm -hmm. uh, the notion that you... There was a book published years ago, uh, You Are What You Were When, I think was the title of it. Uh, and the whole premise of that is that people tend to turn out a certain way with a certain kind of background. And there is some truth in that. We are modeled, I guess, a little bit by the experiences we have. Mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't necessarily make us the person we are. Uh, you've got people that 
commit crimes with sterling backgrounds and people that have terrible backgrounds that are marvelous, wonderful, moral, upright people. So um, it still is interesting, though, to see what effect uh, somebody's upbringing might have on them. Mm -hmm. um, I just just as a, as a snippet, uh, I, I like to say I went to roughly eight grade schools, four high schools, and three colleges. It gives a little bit of an idea of how some people might say inconsistent I was. Uh, others would uh, probably wonder how I could have moved around as much as I did. And it wasn't all moving around, but a lot of it was. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, beyond that, um, I was, you know, I've, I've lived with uh, an aunt and uncle um, and with my mother. My father actually died in World War II before I was even born, uh, probably three weeks before I was born, he died. Uh, that was uh, obviously traumatic for my mother. She already had two children and uh, then here I am coming along um, and, and she didn't, he died about three weeks before I was born or you know, my father died about three weeks before I was born but my mother didn't find out about it. She knew he was injured but she didn't find out about his death until probably just a few days before I was born hmm. if, if even that much uh, because the notification in World War II uh, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have uh, the internet and things like that. So uh, the government had a uh, home of record for everybody. And the home of record was in Kansas. That was where my mother was born and raised. And so the, since my father had quit a job in Kingsport, Tennessee uh, in 1941, I believe it was, uh, for, for when he went in service, uh, they established their home of record as uh, my mother's home in Kansas. So the notification, the telegraph, telegram went to Kansas, and my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, uh, got on a train and went to New Mexico, where my mother was staying, and uh, took the notification to her. Mm -hmm. So that was that was traumatic. My mother had a lot of health, uh, mental health problems over the years, and I spent quite a bit of time with an aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. um, spent many summers with them, and probably three, at least three, maybe four school years. When you're little, some some stuff just kind of registers in your memory and blocks, and it's kind of hard to put it back together. Mm -hmm. um, and the family was separated. So I have uh, one sister and one brother. But at that time, uh, when we were actually separated, when my mother went in the hospital, uh, that was 1951, just before I turned six. So at that point, as a family, we were separated. And over the remaining years growing up, uh, there probably was a total of less than one year where all three of us were together. So I, I have, let's just say, good relationship with my brother and sister. Um, let's just say I don't have a 
real close relationship with my brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be kind of characterize it as the person who could survive on an island by himself as long as there was food. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I know some people would probably go crazy, but uh, I'm not that way. Uh, my brother isn't either. My sister is much more sociable than the rest of us. But again, she was uh, she was probably 14 when we were split up. Mm-hmm. So she was much older and more mature and had more experience with family. So um, probably made it a little easier for her. You know, you mentioned how people um, are shaped by their experiences, but people can turn up. You know, that's not all there is to it. And I guess the other aspect of of things are just genetics. People are not born just a blank slate, it seems like, but they're born with certain personalities and certain ways. So you got that mix in there. Um, is there anything else that you're thinking of when it that influences how a life works out? Or is it mainly those two things and just the way they mix together and so forth? Well, I know it sounds, it sounds like an excuse, but I have tried many times over the years to focus my attention on remembering people's names. And from what I said about the number of schools I went to, obviously I bounced around a lot from place to place, and I... Uh, over the years, I would say I probably had a couple of pretty close friends, uh, but in both of those instances, uh, it wasn't too long before I had to leave and go somewhere else. And I would say one characteristic that I have that is probably related to to degree to that upbringing is that I have a very hard time remembering people's names. And I think it's subconscious because in my somewhere back in the back of my mind, I know that I'm going to be leaving anyway, so what's the point? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, even to me, it sounds a bit like an excuse, but I think there is some truth in that because I, I remember uh, in, when I was a junior in high school, I had to move away from Indianapolis, and I had a very good friend there. Uh, and we were, you know, we were doing a lot of things together, and um, we were into cars. And of course, it's Indianapolis. Uh, we had both been to the Speedway selling newspapers, and we both had paper routes together. And um, I was one of the old old time paper boys that sold that hawked newspapers at the Indy 500, and you know, I'd get the papers that are still hot from the press, literally warm newspapers Mm -hmm. to sell after the race to people leaving the racetrack. Um, And, you know, I delivered newspapers every morning, got up at 4 o'clock every morning, seven days a week to deliver newspapers, uh, probably for four years straight when I was in grade school and high school. And had a camaraderie with him. But the thing that always struck me as strange in years later years when I look back on it, uh, when we had to move, my mother moved from uh, Indiana back to Kansas uh, when I was a junior in high school, right in the middle of the school year, uh, about one month into the second semester. 
Um, I went with some grudgery, if you want to call it that, but went and never looked back. And in later years, I thought about that, and I said, why didn't I, why didn't I write him a letter, or try to keep in touch? It wasn't as easy then. You had to do it by letter, and you know, I couldn't afford, I mean, we didn't have much money, so I couldn't afford long-distance phone calls. <laughs> mm-hmm. People today just pick up a cell phone and call somebody anywhere in the country. You couldn't do that then. So, you know, I just, I just left, didn't look back. I've touched base with him on Facebook in recent years, uh, just to kind of bring up to date, but uh, other than that, nothing. So that has been a difficulty for me. Uh, it's got me in trouble a couple of times with people I should know and should have known and should have recognized and and knew I knew them, but I couldn't put a name to them. Mm-hmm. That happens frequently. So, in fact, my wife, uh, Helen, has been a big help over the years. Uh, I'd nudge her and say, What's her name? And uh, she'd tell me, because she usually could remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, lately, uh, we're, we're both having a little more difficulty than we did before. Uh, that's what happens when you get in your mid-70s, I guess. So is it, um, as far as like the relationships, is it that you just um, have not uh, kept up with people and stuff? Or that the whole process or the activity of just socially being with someone and doing things together isn't something you feel a need for as well. Like you said, you would do just fine on a deserted mm-hmm. island. Um, so is, is it? I, I, there's, there's truth in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Personality-wise, my wife and I are polar opposites. Okay. Yeah. Um, when <laughs> I, I, I like the, well, if we go to a party, I come home totally exhausted. Mm-hmm. She comes home so energized she can't get to sleep. Um, I, I use the example, when I was uh, doing my graduate studies at uh, Webster University, I was already working. Uh, but after we moved here in 1987 from Southern California, um, I had a managerial position with the GM here in St. Louis, and for the, I've been traveling almost my whole career uh, with both Ford and General Motors, and this was the first time I actually had an office job. So I took advantage of it to get my master's degree, and I got a master's degree in human resources development. And one of the classes I took having to do with... Uh, literally having to do with human resources directly. I can't remember the title of the class, but it's one where we studied uh, psychological profiles and all sorts of things like that. <laughs> we got into a, a, one, of the, one of the surveys that you take. Uh, the teacher went through, and I can't remember. It's the one where you have uh, four categories, and, and each has a letter or something like that. And it defines your your personality. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting in the back in the corner. Well, part of that is because of my name. I've, I've always been relatively tall and at the end of the alphabet. So I've always sat in the back. 
in classes, they always put me in the back because I was usually taller than the other kids, especially in the eighth grade, I was six foot tall. And so they put me in the back in the corner. They always did. And I tended to like it, and I, I, I still sit there. But it was funny because I was the only person in the class that was that personality. And the teacher got a real chuckle out of it because it's exactly where I was sitting. <laughs> yeah. She said, I could have expected that's what you would be. Right. So clearly it, um, it's there, and that is my personality, mm-hmm. uh, very much so. I've got a son that is similar to that. I've got one that's very much like Helen, who you know him well. It's my son, Mark. He just is everybody's friend, and he knows everybody everywhere. And, mm-hmm. um, has no problem with that. Well, what is your, so I guess, you, so as a, an introverted type of person, what is your favorite way to interact with so, someone? Well, first of all, I would say it's one-on-one mm-hmm. and face-to-face. Yeah. I don't like phone calls. Okay. Uh, it, it's ironic because uh, much of my career in the auto industry, I worked uh, not exclusively in this, but uh, I had involvement with customer relations and a lot of phone calls uh, with dealers and a lot of phone calls with customers. I don't like phone calls, uh, in part because I like to read people. I want to know they're listening, <laughs> first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know that they're not telling me what they think I want to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, I, I, I prefer face-to-face. Yeah. It's more real. I, I, I've had, I, I, it got to the point where when the phone would ring at home, I'd cringe. <laughs> I would refuse to answer it. I'd make Helen answer it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just me. Yeah. Um, and then, like, I'm kind of an introvert, too. So, is like, for me, small talk is just not that interesting to me. Um, like, I just want to kind of get down to it, to things that are most important and most interesting and stuff. Is that how you are as well, or are you, or are you okay I, with small talk? I, I would say so. Um, I would enjoy talking politics with someone who... would engage in what I call reasoned discourse. Mm -hmm. Not just spouting opinions or repeating their position, you know, to see who can yell the loudest or who can overwhelm the other person. Mm -hmm. Um, But whether it's politics or religion or um, literature or anything else, Somebody with a with a similar knowledge level would be able to debate and discuss something. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy that. I don't get a whole lot of opportunity to do that, um, but that I that kind of thing I enjoy. Uh, I'm not a hunter. I'm not a fisherman. Uh, I enjoy the outdoors, but I don't like ticks and mosquitoes. So <laughs> it kind of hampers my enjoyment quite a bit if during that season of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not a camper. Uh, I spent a lot of years on a farm. I've been outside. I know what the outside's like and 
My, my wife's description is pretty good. Her idea of camping is a motel room. <laughs> mm-hmm. she, she was raised on a farm in Kansas um, without running water and inside bathrooms. And uh, she said she camped for the first 18 years of her life. She doesn't want to do it anymore. Hmm. And that's not exactly the way I feel, but uh, I'm pretty close to that. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I, you know, I like... Uh, I like civilization. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, talking about religion, and I know you identify with Christianity. Yes. So why Christianity? Well, it's easy to say that I was raised a Methodist. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was active in the Methodist church, as my father was, as my grandfather was. Um. Uh, and uh, my great-grandparents were active Methodists. have a lot of history of uh, Christianity. In fact, um, my great to the tenth time or something like that, I looked, looked, tried to figure it out once. I think that's what it was. Uh, grandfather was a Quaker hmm. in... Uh, New York in uh, around 1660. I recently visited a Quaker congregation in St. Louis. Ah, in St. Louis. Yeah, after reading an author who had a Quaker background and it just kind of interested me. But yeah, there's about 200 years of Quakers in my background. Uh, the The my direct line was Quaker from about 1660, roughly, uh, until about 1840, somewhere in the 1840s, hmm. when um, my great-great-grandfather uh, married a, I, I want to say widowed woman, uh, I was told one time it was divorced, but I looked it up recently. She was widowed, but she wasn't a Quaker. Mm-hmm. So he got read out of the Quaker um, meeting. That's what they call it. And uh, became an, a, an Anglican. And then the next generation became Methodist and were Methodist up through my, uh, my upbringing uh, until my senior year in high school. Uh, the that, that's kind of a long-winded story, but I had a lot of exposure to church, singing in the choir at the Methodist Church, and as a teenager. But in later years, I got to thinking about it, and have no recollection. You know, I, I heard talk about Jesus and God, but no recollection of ever once being challenged with the notion of accepting Christ as Lord and Savior and uh, necessary for salvation. It just was kind of like a, you know, be churchy and, and God is there and Christ is there and, you know, I was baptized as an infant and all that sort of thing. Uh, so maybe they just assumed that, I guess. Perhaps. Yes, and I'm. I'm not. I'm not convinced that 
they didn't do that, but I don't recall it. Maybe it wasn't ready. I don't know. Um, I'm a pretty pragmatic individual, and I tend to take things directly as I see them uh, instead of how I want them to be, maybe. And I had difficulty with the notion of uh, the conflict between evolution and creation. but when I was a senior in high school, this was kind of the seminal moment for me. When I was a senior in high school, I, and I had attended this church a number of times over the years, especially during summers when I was lived with an aunt and uncle, um, the Methodist church had closed down years before out in the country, so they started going to the Baptist church. Well, my wife's family had always gone to the Baptist church there in the country, and I started going with my aunt and uncle and my senior year, when I was living with him, I spent my senior year of high school uh, with my aunt and uncle, graduated from school in Paola, Kansas, of all places. It just, it, it, it's funny how these things work. Uh, I attended Sunday school, and the pastor, we had a pastor who was a student at uh, the Baptist College in Ottawa, Kansas. Uh, this American Baptist, and <laughs> I attended a Sunday school class that he taught, and he asked me one week if I would give the opening prayer the following week. Seemed like a pretty simple thing to do, so I, I went home and I kind of struggled with it a little bit. I had never been asked to pray in a, in a group setting or anything with church before. Uh, I had a conversation with my aunt, and I can't remember exactly what she said, but what struck me out of that was that um, I, I felt kind of hypocritical. I said, like, I, you know, I, how can I pray when I'm not even sure? And what it boiled down to was something that's reflected in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 6, where you just have to believe. It's a matter of faith. And it's just basically to come unto God is to believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And it just struck me, for some reason, at that particular moment, that it truly was just a matter of belief. I had all the head knowledge. You know, it was all there. But I didn't have the, the acceptance faith, if you want to put it that way. And um, basically, that was the beginning of my journey. Shortly after that, um, I attended a crusade at a, at a church in Ottawa, Kansas, uh, that, that our church had taken a group of youth to and uh, accepted Christ at that point. It start, started with believing that God was and settling that issue in my heart and then going on to uh, the point that Christ was the way. And so during that time, the evolution, creation type of thing was kind of something you were thinking about. Is that right? Or well, it was, a big, it was a really big issue at the time. There were a lot of, yeah. um, you know, a lot of, I won't say conflicting, but a lot of confrontational uh, dialogue going on uh, at the time. 
on the issue. And I, I know that nothing is black and white um, in man's interpretation of things. Uh, and so, you know, I can take the Bible at face value for what it is and believe what it says. The, some of the interpretation, how and why, uh, that's up to man to debate, I think. But the fact that God created the earth, he created the world, he created us, I don't have a problem with that, exactly how he did it. You know, snapped his fingers, uh, whistled, said hi, uh, said create it, I don't know. How did he do it? And uh, the Bible leaves some things, I think intentionally, open, so that... Um, we just have to accept it, even if we don't understand it. And I don't fully understand it. I look around me and I, and I think, how can all of this just evolve from nothing? And there's a, um, there's a book that Stephen Hawking wrote entitled About Time. And there's a foreword in that book by Carl Sagan. Uh, who's famous for his uh, television series about, uh, essentially about evolution. And his introduction is, you know, about evolution and uh, cosmology and the Big Bang and all this sort of thing. But the very last comment he makes, I thought, was very telling. It's essentially, you know, all of this came from the Big Bang but we don't know where that came from, essentially. And so it, it tells me that even, even one of the most avowed um, creationist atheists is maybe not so atheist as one would think, uh, probably a little more agnostic. And they don't have the answer. And I don't think anybody has the answer with where it came from other than God created it. Of course, then you could ask, where did God come from? And I think, well, that's God's business, not mine. <laughs> because that's, that's not relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, John Walton, he um, teaches at, um, at Wheaton. And actually, I think Mark, I mentioned him to Mark, and Mark, I think, has t taught with him or like at the same school at different times. Mm -hmm. And I've enjoyed reading him, and um, he deals, um, his perspective is more like we, like the Bible, the, you know, is kind of dealing with different questions and trying to answer different questions than what we bring to the text so that um, we're kind of wanting maybe sometimes to get our scientific um, questions answered, whereas that wasn't <clears throat> what was being dealt with, perhaps, maybe something more about roles and how the world functions and how God put it all together and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, but anyway, um, <clears throat> so... Um, 
So just kind of, so it was just like a, deciding that it was a matter of faith and it was just, um, you had the head knowledge, but it was just a matter of like, well, if you're going to, or were you going to accept that as true, live as, if that was true or, or not? And that was kind of like that decision you made at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it, in my own experience, I, I came to the conclusion that you can't, um, educate somebody into Christianity. It really is a, you can call it a leap of faith, step of faith, whatever it is, but there's a point at which you just have to say, I don't understand it all, but I accept it. And even the Bible itself is clear on that, that, um, you know, to those who believe it's the power of God, to those who don't, it's idiocy. It's crazy. But to those who do, it's the power of God. And once you make that step, you see it. So um, what about um, since then? Like, so has that, how has things changed or over the years as far as just you and Christianity? Has it... uh, felt like a relationship like a you know a real connection with god um or you know has it changed or you know what has it become like well since i was brought up going to church regularly uh, that hasn't changed Mm -hmm. um a level I, I suppose, and, and, and there, was, there was no lightning flash transition. Um, that's not me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll just leave it at that. That's not my personality. Uh, you can ask anybody who knows me fairly well. I'm a, I'm a plodding thinker. Mm-hmm. And I see my wife walking around in the background there. She probably has a little grin on her face because... Uh, I used to have a problem with people trying to finish my sentences because I would say something and I was thinking about it and my sentence would be going slow and they'd want to finish it. I said, oh, that would irritate me so much. <laughs> but I was, you know, I was raised in church, around church people and good people. Um, I'm sure many of them saved, even though I didn't come to that. In the Methodist Church, I, I know at one time it was the evangelical leader in the United States. Hmm. And that's kind of the background I come from. Uh, a great aunt uh, married a Methodist pastor in the late 1800s and went on to do a lot of, a lot of work with that. Um, just, I would say the big change is just a sense of Peace, knowing at least that issue is settled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the end. Uh, I don't have to worry about where I'm going or whether I'm going anywhere. Uh, I know my wife's Christian, uh, born-again believer. Uh, the term Christian it means a lot of things to a lot of people. And to a lot of people, it just means you were born in the United States. 
mm-hmm. which is idiot. But, uh, or it means you went to church your whole life, which doesn't mean anything either. Uh, my experience is proof of that. Uh, but just a peace and confidence in knowing that, uh, yes, there are going to be difficult times, and yes, there's tragedies in the world, and um, we go through a lot of things. Well, Jesus went through a lot of things. It's not just the crucifixion. It was all the other stuff he went through that's very similar to what we go through. And yet he did it for us. And so uh, I have I have a confidence and peace that at least undergirds or backstops uh, my response and my reaction to everything. Um, a long time ago, I came to the to terms with the notion that uh, what defines our faith is not what we say uh, or what we say we believe, but it's how we respond, not react, but how we respond to difficult situations in our life. Um, you interviewed my son who lost his wife uh, in, in her 40s uh, to, to cancer, and it was a hideous cancer. Uh, and that's, you know, it's kind of kind of thing he went through. Um, how do you respond? Uh, so many people, everything's going fine, then something happens and they want to blame God for it. Well, God may have allowed it in the sense that we know he has the power to, to make anything happen, but he also created us to love him and to do that. We had to have free will and not be robots. So it's a trade-off. Um, we like our free will. <laughs> oh, yes, we do. Um, and since we have free will, people with less than stellar morals also have free will and will do things. And those things will impact on Christians. This, uh, this horrible shooting in Texas this past week, uh, this is an awful thing, uh, is an example. Satan's alive and well and he influences people. Um, sometimes it's just... Somebody's brain is miswired. Sometimes it's Satan's influence. Sometimes it's just a result of the imperfection in man because of the fall. Uh, sometimes it's a pure accident. But things happen to Christians. And the issue is, how do we respond? Uh, does it turn us away from God? Or do we reflect our faith in how we behave. Uh, that's, I think, uh, kind of a differentiating factor. I've seen people leave the church because the pastor left. Mm-hmm. I just shake my head. Their faith was in the pastor, not the Lord. And I really appreciate the pastor we have at First Baptist Arnold because he's very firm on that issue. And let's, you know, when it, whenever he's gone and he's willing to be gone and let someone else fill the pulpit, we've got good people to do it. Um, I feel pretty confident as much as, as 
most people in our church appreciate our pastor, that if he left tomorrow, most would still continue coming because it's the Lord's church, not the pastor's church. Yeah. And I, I, I've moved around enough. I've seen churches collapse almost overnight because of misbehavior on the part of pastors. And I've seen people leave churches because of something they didn't like, which had nothing to do with the gospel, uh, which tells me their faith isn't very strong, first of all. It also is a reminder that we can't assume anything about anybody. And, you know, people will complain that they give a, a, an invitation at the end of each service. There's bound to be people in the congregation who have been coming for 20 and 30 years who still have not surrendered to Christ. And if that invitation brings them up, great. Do it every week. Do it every time we have a service. Uh, because that's why we're there. So when it comes to just day in, day out, everyday life, as someone in your 70s, do you kind of have, have you come to the point where you kind of feel like you have it figured out? As in, um, like, um, how to best use your time and just how to structure your day, how to balance to do list and relationships and family and all of these things? Like, uh, do you feel pretty settled in that, or is it something you're still working with? I, I, I. Do I have it all figured out? No, uh, never will. Um, you talk about structure and daily life. Uh, a fair amount of that is going to the doctor. And uh, we, we kind of laughed about that last week. It seemed just about every day last week, it was either going to the doctor or going to do something that had something to do with health. Hmm. And that doesn't happen every week, but uh, the older you get, the more that happens and it's just we just kind of chuckle about it because that's just life it's the way it is when you get older things don't work quite as well as they used to mm -hmm. it just happens um but i mean there are some things you know it, but but i think it's just a case of living your life day by day uh, as you are uh, Trying not to have too many things on your bucket list. In fact, trying not to make too much of a bucket list, actually, because that just leads to frustration to some extent. Uh, but there are things you might want to do, but not putting them as must-dos. Just, you know, I'd like to do this. I'd like to take an airplane ride to New Zealand. I'd love to go to New Zealand. I'd love to go to Ireland. I'd love to go back to... Germany and uh, travel around some there because that's where my uh, mother's family came from. But, but um, my health limits my ability to take that kind of an airplane ride. Uh, so it's just the way it is, you know. I can always look at a travel log on the television. It's no big deal. Um, you do what you can, and I think that's. Some people would say, well, it's fatalistic. You've got to have goals. And Well, yeah. You know, I do. My goal is to be a good father, a good husband, 
um, a good provider, uh, active in church, um, do something in church. Right now, for, well, for the last 15 years, I've been uh, leading music. I'm not a musician, but I can sing. I'm a pretty good singer. And I lead music for the seniors. Uh, we have a Wednesday afternoon meeting, and I've been leading that uh, music, the singing part, for about the last 15 years. Hmm. Um, get great pay. People say they like it. <laughs> Uh, but uh, that, I, at, at one time I did serve as a deacon, then I had some severe back issues, um, still have that, I still take uh, pain medications for it, but it's not near as bad as it used to be, but I, I couldn't even, I had a hard time riding in a car for quite a while, and standing or sitting, just visiting with somebody was painful. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to give up being a deacon because of that. I just couldn't, couldn't make visits and calls and that sort of thing. And I, I hate to say it, but my, my difficulty with um, talking on the telephone, you could ask Helen how terrible I am about talking on the telephone. I, when, even when we were dating, uh, she would call and I'd say, well, well, uh, and she'd talk. She's a talker. She'd talk, talk, talk. And I'd say, um, yeah, well, uh, she'd just sigh on the other end. Like, it's just the way I've always been. But uh, anyway, I had to give that up. And um, so I got involved with uh, leading the music. And I was involved in our prayer ministry for a while. Uh, when we were doing it, back in the day when you sent postcards, Instead of um, everybody having email mm-hmm. uh, and internet connections, now it's all done by email, and someone else is responsible for it. But back when it was uh, when we were sending postcards, I did that for a number of years. Uh, I would I would collect the uh, prayer requests, and we'd send a postcard out every week to people that were on our list. We had about a hundred. I can't remember how many it was. It was between 100 and 150, and it varied. People that we sent postcards to every week as, as prayer warriors for the church. And uh, I did that for a number of years before they changed over and did away with the postcards. Um, Your um, kind of the attitude coming through reminds me of a couple of quotes I saw on your Facebook page. Like um, just the attitude of like not having to have you know do certain things and just being kind of taking life as it comes um you uh one of your quotes was life is what you do while you plan for the future <laughs> yeah uh, I, I have to say i i stole that quote from oh, i can't think of his name it was a baseball player mm-hmm. um and i don't know where he got it but uh that's um that's one that struck me as uh, as somewhat pithy because you don't think about it that way usually. You know, we plan for the future, we plan for this, we plan for that, and while we're doing all that planning, we're living life. Mm-hmm. So sometimes just live life and don't worry so much about the plans. You know, if you want to go do something, go do something. If you want to plant a flower, plant flower or whatever. 
Right. You can't you can't bookmark everything. You just yeah. some stuff is just life, and a lot of stuff you do in life is just responding to various outside uh, influences and inputs that come along that you hadn't expected. Right. You know, somebody drops in unexpectedly. Um, somebody in the family. You know, somewhere there's a death in the family and everybody gets together and you say, well, why didn't we do this while they were alive? People do that all the time. Yeah. Um, well, they got together. You know, maybe it's because somebody died, but they still, they got together. And nobody planned it, but it happened. So take advantage of it. Everybody has a good visit and catches up and off you go. The other quote, kind of similar, good things come to those who wait especially what's left by those who hustle. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln. Okay. That supposedly is a quote from Abraham Lincoln. I got a book uh, of famous quotes, and that one that jumped right out at me when I saw that. Yeah. Um, You know, you hear frequently, good things come to those who wait. Um, But that implies a certain context and like a lot of things, especially from the Bible, that people take out of context. Um, I think Lincoln's twist on it is pretty good. Uh, sometimes you just got to go and do it. Take the bull by the horns. You don't have to. And, and the reason that struck with me is because I have a tendency to overthink things. And If you, if you want something thoroughly analyzed, give it to me, and I'll tell you everything you want to know and a whole bunch of stuff you didn't want to know about it. Uh, but sometimes I just need to be pushed to just do it. You know, mm-hmm. You'll figure some of that out as you go along. Um, but if, if you don't mind waiting a while, usually I can do it pretty good. <laughs> Sometimes I need a nudge, and Helen's my nudge. She'll nudge me occasionally. So I was going to, you know, just thinking about our conversation, I was going to ask if life in your 70s is how you expected it would be. And um, I imagine, like, a, you would, um, you know, just the physical problems you brought up is something like maybe something you weren't necessarily expecting or didn't think about or it's just has become a big part of your life in the 70s but I don't know how what what are your thoughts is life in your 70s how you would expect how you expected would, it to be or I how? would have to be frank and say that I did not have any expectations okay uh, I had Little experience. I'm not, I'm not saying this is why, but I had little experience with that. As I said, my father died before I was born. My uncle died. Um, oh, I can't think how old he was. He was probably in his 50s, late 50s. Hmm. I'd, have to, I'd have to try to calculate that. But um, not an old man. He was still working. It was a it was a work accident that mm-hmm. he died. Yeah. Um, my father-in-law died in his 60s from heart failure, 67 something like that. So I don't have any experience with personal family that's 
old. Mm-hmm. Now, what I do have is I have extended family uh, that it's not unusual on both sides, my mother's and my father's side, to live into their 90s and be active uh, up to their late 80s at least, uh, even into the 90s. Um, I had, a, I had a, an aunt visit when we lived in Northern California, and she was already in her 90s, and she walked around all over the place with us, and I got more tired than she did. I thought at the time, well, I hope I'm that good when I get that old. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my health is what it is. Uh, I was, I would say I was essentially a lifetime runner. I used to run all the time. And when I, I developed some health issues uh, in my mid-50s and had to stop running, and I'll tell you, I still miss that. Hmm. Um, and yet that happened in my mid-50s. So that shift... Uh, occurred a long time ago. It's kind of funny to say something in my mid-50s occurred a long time ago. But um, honestly, I look around and I see people that are younger than me and I think they're old. I don't feel, and I don't know if I, I don't know what I look like, but I don't feel that old. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister's eight years older than me and she's still doing fine. My brother's four years older than me and he's still doing things regularly. Um, now, I say doing fine. Uh, we're all older, mm-hmm. you know, right. so there, there are issues. But my sister was here not too long ago to visit. Uh, my brother's kind of like me. He doesn't... Um, he's, I guess you could say, introverted. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's kind of a broad... Uh, has kind of a, your, uh, uh, what's the word? I don't like the word because of the implication of um, almost weakness. Hmm. But that's, that's really not it. Uh, you can ask anybody who knows me. Um, Christopher was the same way. You bet, kind of easy going, you know. Things kind of roll off you, and if you want to do it, fine. It's okay, no big deal. But when you decide that something has to be a certain way, you're like a rock. Hmm. You know, that decision has been made, it's done. It's mm-hmm. history, let's go on to something else. And you can be comfortable in your own skin uh, and be comfortable without having to have a whole bunch of people around you. Uh, you can be able to stand alone very easily and still not be weak, if I can put it that way. The fact that you're standing alone doesn't make you weak. I told the kids when they were in school, and all through, school, all through uh, elementary and high school, my children attended uh, a Christian school. Um, not always having all the stuff that you'd like to have in an education, but getting a good education, nonetheless. And uh, with, with good Christian influence from the teachers. But I would tell them, it's still possible, even in your Christian school, that all the other kids could be wrong. 
And if you know what they're doing is not right, you can stand alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need to have that strength to be able to know what's right and stand alone. Mike Cash, one of the um, uh, ministers to the high schoolers uh, that we had at at First Baptist uh, a number of years ago, um, I remember him saying, uh, heading out for a mission trip, and, and we used to go with the, uh, the youth on mission trips uh, every year, uh, Helen and I and, and some of the others in the high school department. And I remember him telling them one year when we went to Chicago, uh, I'm not going to give you a long list of do's and don'ts. And he just looks them all in the eye and he says, you know what's right and what's wrong. And, you're, and the implication being they're much more likely to regulate themselves properly uh, if you don't give them a list of do's and don'ts because what the first thing that happens with a, with a kid when you give them a list of don'ts is they'll try to find a way of working around that um, and saying, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't do that. Right. Uh, yeah. In other words, they're putting the responsibility on the person that gave them the list. Uh, Mike was putting the responsibility on the individual to reflect on whether it was wrong or right in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. And it was more effective. And, and that's, I, I felt very strongly about that with my own children, that uh, they, they, they had to make that decision. They couldn't let someone else make it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you find most um, satisfying or enjoyable in your, your life at this time? <laughs> Just being here <laughs> and having family. Okay. Um, I got a, you know, I've got a good church family. Uh, known these people for a long time. Uh, when I retired, we were living in Columbia, Missouri. I really liked it there. It was a lovely, lovely place. We had a, we had a nice house, and I really liked the community, uh, liked the town. Uh, good, small town, middle America, really. Uh, and both of us still have, but Helen especially, a lot of family in the Kansas City area. Uh, but... Our kids had finished school here. We moved here in 1987 and lived here until 2000 when we moved to Columbia. And I retired in 2005. Uh, Christopher, I think, was living, yes, Christopher was living here at the time. And Aaron had indicated he wanted to come back here. He was, at that time, I think he was uh, working in uh, Washington, D.C., had already graduated from school, and Mark was still in school. And they all had an affinity to St. Louis area, so we decided to move back here because we, we had stayed in contact with people at church and you know, friends we had here. Uh, so we decided to move back here, and so we have, uh, with, a, with a five-year intermission, we have uh, basically been part of this church since early 1988. Hmm. Uh, seen a lot of changes. Uh, a lot of people, some people come, a lot of people go. Many of the ones who went, went to heaven instead of 
to another town. Um, seems to be happening more and more recently with people we know, but that's going to happen as we get older. Um, so it's just living life. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have... I, I just, you know, enjoy being, doing things with Helen. Um, I have said many times over the years, and will probably say it till the day one of us dies, that she's my best friend. Hmm. And has been since my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, that's me. So what does that mean to you, like a best friend? Um, like, what makes up that type of uh, friendship? Is it like the conversations you enjoy or the experiences or well, just the pursuits together? Some, someone... Doesn't have to be a lot of noise. Um, just someone I can talk to. Someone who will always be there. Um, it's I, I don't I don't I'm not even sure why, but before we got married, um, we had a conversation and basically, uh, because I, I think we're both pretty realistic people, uh, we had a conversation uh, about marriage, and both of us basically said that. Uh, and it's easy to say this, but we meant it, and we've stuck with it, that the word divorce was not in our dictionary and would never be talked about because uh, we were getting married and we were going to make it work. And we had some difficult times, uh, not so much you know, directly with each other, but circumstantial difficulties. Um, but you make it work. Uh, that's what love's all about. Okay. And so uh, we have, I think, that confidence in each other that we're going to be there. Uh, we will help each other if in difficulty um, and have done so. Okay. And as the years go by, uh, you know, that I won't say the confidence level goes up, but the experiential level goes up. And it's, it's the difference between knowing that's the commitment you have and knowing that's the experience you have. That obviously impacts uh, the way you think about it, but it doesn't change the result. <clears throat> Is there anything that you wish you would have known or done when you were younger, like my age? <laughs> Honestly, if I'd have been a little more long thinking, I might have kept the uh, 1965 Mustang. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I've thought that I might have kept the 1967 Corvette I had one time, but uh, I figured up what the insurance would have cost me over the years. I could go out and buy one now for the same amount, so I figured I didn't lose anything by, uh, by not keeping it. Uh, but it's, it's funny how those things go, because 
when we moved from Northern California to Southern California, I asked my son Christopher, he said, I've got this 65 Mustang. <clears throat> You're not driving yet, but you will be soon. Should I keep it? Or, because I had to buy a car for myself. I'd been using a company car, but the, the, the transfer put me in a position where I lost my company car. It was, a, it was a, an improvement positionally, but it took the company car away. So I had to buy a separate car to drive to work. So Helen would have one at home. So I said, I could, I could keep the Mustang and, um, and work on it and get it drivable and probably drive it to work. But I'd still probably have to buy another car in the interim. Uh, but he said, nah, don't worry about it. A couple of years later, he came to me and said, that's the dumbest thing I ever said. <laughs> but other than that, I can't, I'm joking. I can't really think of anything that uh, I would do different. I mean, our life is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are the decisions we make. I, I look back and I think when I got home from Vietnam, I was given the opportunity to stay in the service. Um, I chose not to because it was because I felt the army was too bureaucratic. Uh, it wasn't practical enough. Uh, and I didn't like the politics of it. So I, I think the irony of our all ironies is who did I end up working for? General Motors. Talk about bureaucracy. Hmm. Anyway, uh, you know, and when I was in, in college, uh, I went through an ROTC program. And uh, through that, you get a reserve commission in the Army. Uh, as, as one of the top graduates in that program, I was given the offer of a regular Army commission, which is the same as graduating, you know, as far as the service is concerned, it's the same as graduating from an academy. Wow. Um, but I turned it down because my college major was automotive technology, and I wanted to be in that field. And the Ordnance Corps in the Army was where I was headed, And the Ordnance Corps was not one of the options for regular Army Commission. Um, I maybe could have ended up there eventually, but I would have had to go go into either Army, Armor, Artillery, or Infantry. And I just didn't have an interest that direction. Uh, So that was a decision I made, and I've thought over the years that maybe I could have made a better decision because if I'd gone honestly if I'd have made the choice to go to armor probably be involved with tanks probably uh, my first assignment most likely would have been to Germany because at that time that's typically what they did they didn't take somebody in in uh, one of the combat arms except maybe infantry and send them fresh to Vietnam uh, they essentially, well, they didn't do that with me either, but, it, but, but if I'd been sent to Germany, it would have been a, at least a one, maybe a two-year assignment. Um, and I might not have gone to Vietnam. But the way it was, I ended up going to Vietnam, so that made a difference. Um, but, you know, as you go through the years, you make decisions. And every one of those decisions results in a direction that is only one of many different directions you could have gone. And you can go crazy 
trying to figure out what you could have done different that would have been better. Um, it kind of goes back to what do you do with what you have? That's what God's concerned with. Um, it, there, there was a book written many years ago about um, discerning God's will, and I can't remember the title of the book, but there was a period probably in the early 80s when there was a lot of discussion and writing about uh, knowing God's will. And an example used in the book was somebody choosing a college. And, you know, this uh, one person was saying, you know, I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and I just don't, God isn't telling me which college to go to. And the answer was, if you can see learning what you want to learn at the college, it doesn't really matter which college you go to as long as you can serve the Lord at that college. If you can, if you choose to go to a place that's going to harm your testimony, then that's probably not God's will. If you can go to a place where you can be a believer and serve him, it probably doesn't matter which college you go to. And I thought that's very insightful thinking, in my opinion, because too many people agonize over... God gave us free will for a reason, you know, and that's part of free will. Um, I, can, I can be an auto mechanic or an aerospace engineer, uh, depending on my aptitude and my interest. Um, God's not going to tell me which one to be. But he is concerned with whether or not I am a good Christian. And whether or not I follow him, uh, that's what he's concerned about. Uh, it's just, just like politics. I get in a little bit of discussion occasionally with somebody about politics and religion. And I find it interesting that so many people seem to think that God must be a Republican or a Democrat. I look back to Jesus, who said, Render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God's. And whether your government is socialist or democratic doesn't change your relationship to God. It might change or affect other people's relationship because they're not believers. It might affect their behavior because they're not believers. But my relationship to God is a singular, personal, one-on-one -on -one thing. And whether my president is a Republican or Democrat or an independent, that doesn't change. Whether the laws of my land are allow abortion or don't allow it, whether they allow private business or don't allow it, that doesn't change my relationship with God. It might change societal influences, but that's always been the case. I mean, the Roman Empire was no easy place to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. And there's been very few places down through the years that it's been an easy place 
to be a true Christian. Um, just like a lot of people say this is Christian country, it's, there is no such thing. There's Christian people. Mm-hmm. And if this country is all Christian people, then it's a country of Christian people, not a Christian country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the laws, uh, a lot of the Constitution is based on good, sound moral principles that are reflected in the Bible, but they're also ref- reflected in other religious uh, 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 systems. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't make this a Christian country. And I just wish people would focus more on their individual relationship with God and less on the country's relationship to God, because that's not what God's looking for. Well, thanks, John. I think we'll wrap it up here. I appreciate the conversation, and it was was really good, so I appreciate that. Thanks. Okay. Okay.